Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was a beautiful song. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is where we left off a few weeks ago. And wasn't last week wonderful with the Yorks and Dr. York preaching to us from Luke chapter 23? If you missed that, I'd love for you to go back to the, to the uh, internet <laughs> or whatever that thing is called and find it and listen to that message. That was beautiful. As you're finding John chapter 9, uh, let me mention to you, if you didn't receive the email that we sent out late this week uh, with an exciting update on our staff alignment. As you know that we have uh, been a church now, we're coming up on our 17th anniversary this April. We planted Crosspoint on April 17th of 2005, and so we're coming up on our 17th birthday this April. And for, uh, since that time, God has given us just a wonderful staff to serve our church in so many ways. I wish I could take you behind the scenes on a weekly basis and show you how our staff, both pastoral and administrative, serve the needs of the church. And we have since for some time that we, the elders have since for some time that we would be well served to appoint uh, one of the staff as an executive pastor to give a little bit more intentional oversight to the pastoral team and the administrative staff. And we are delighted to tell you that a couple weeks ago, we appointed Springer Kane to that role of executive pastor. Now, Springer has been on our staff for a good number of years. He's been really overseeing administration and missions. And so in many ways, he's been doing a lot of that work. But uh, this entails a little bit more specific uh, role of, of being in charge of the staff, even me, and, and the, uh, just the overall operations of the church. And we think it'll really bless us. We think it'll help us be more fruitful and more effective to what the Lord has called us to do. So, so praise God for, for His grace in the wisdom of the elders for this and just the gifts that God has given a springer to our church. So I'm really excited about that. Well, let me, uh, let me turn our attention to John chapter 9 and verses 1 through 12 is our text this morning. I know that I mention a lot, like every time I get in a text, I say, oh, well, this verse is just one of my favorites in the Bible. Uh, you, you, you have to endure that when we went through Romans a couple years ago, and now we're in John. And, and, but, but, but seriously, seriously, <laughs> I think John chapter 9 is my favorite chapter in John. <laughs> it is just a remarkable story. It's the story of this man that's been born blind since birth and the account of Jesus healing him. And there's many accounts of Jesus healing people in the New Testament. But what makes this so remarkable is what Jesus says about this healing. And then, which we'll get to next week, the interaction that this man has with his neighbors and with the Pharisees and the people around him and his interpretation and his interaction with what has happened to him. Let's, let's read now verses 1 through, I think we're going to go through 12, but we're going to really focus on verses 1 through 7. And as I'm reading this, I want to give us a kind of outline to work our way through this text. I want you to see that there is a, there's the question that is asked at the beginning of this text by Jesus' disciples. And then there is the answer that Jesus gives them. 
And then finally, there is the miracle. So we're going to look at the question, the answer, and then the miracle. And Lord willing, glean truths from this that we can apply to our lives so that we might be more like, like the Lord. Well, John chapter 9, verse 1. And remember, we're coming off of the end of chapter 8, where we left off a few weeks ago, where Jesus has essentially declared his divinity to the religious leaders of his day by telling them that before Abraham was, I am. He's telling them, I'm God. And it caused them such anger that they wanted to stone him, and he slipped out of the temple. And so evidently, a period of time has passed because now in chapter 9, verse 1, he's now with his disciples, and there's this amazing healing and interaction. So verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Every word of the Lord proves true. I want us to think about the question first. Let's understand the scene. Now, Jesus is with his disciples, so clearly there's been some time that's passed. He didn't just slip out of the temple in chapter 8 and then convene with his disciples. It just doesn't seem sensible. So some time has probably passed. The, the fur has died down a little bit. Jesus is with his disciples. And his disciples, and note that it's his disciples. Note, note they're the ones that ask this question. They ask about this blind man. They say to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, let's just acknowledge the, it just, this is just kind of an insensitive question, isn't it? Here's this guy. It's, maybe they bring him to Jesus. We don't know all the details. But it seems to indicate that within earshot of this man and Jesus, they asked this question of Jesus that at a minimum, if it's not insensitive, is a bit socially awkward. And I am, every time I read something like this about people that have been following Jesus for a while in the Gospels, I'm strangely encouraged. 
Because these men had been with Jesus, they saw his compassion, they had a front row seat with how he dealt tenderly with people, and yet they asked this question with no regard for this man as if he were a mere theological case study rather than a human being. Now, while I feel bad for this man, again, I'm sort of strangely encouraged because haven't we at some point in our lives put our foot in our mouth? And, and Jesus' disciples, clearly, even though they've been with him, are not above this. It's just kind of humbling. Even the best of us can be really, really uh, ignorant at times. But let, let's go deeper than just their social insensitivity. What's this question about? What, what does it reveal about them? Now, on one level, I think this question is, is legitimate, In fact, maybe they were actually thinking about scenes in the Bible where there does seem to be, because implicit in their question is they're clearly connecting sin with this man's blindness, sin with suffering. They're drawing a straight line. They just don't know who to connect it to. Is it his parents or is it this man? Which, which one, Jesus? They just, it's obviously one or two, door number one or door number two. Which is it? They're drawing a straight line between this man's suffering and sin. And so, you know, let's be, let's be generous here. Maybe they are thinking about passages or scenes in the Bible where there is actually a direct line between sin and disobedience and, and suffering or punishment from God. Let, let, me, let me read to you from Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, let me set the scene for you. Israel is wandering in the desert, and they are, uh, they've, come, they've been rescued from Egypt, and the people are complaining, they're frustrated with their leadership. Uh, if I could just categorize, if I could summarize numbers with a, just a one-sentence overview, it would be, sanctification is hard. <laughs> And I think that's what's going on in Numbers. The, the people are upset. The leadership is... And so Moses has led the people. He's received the law. They're coming out of Mount Sinai, wandering in. This should have been a 12-day journey, but it ended up taking them 40 years. And listen to, listen to what the scene that unfolds in Numbers chapter 12. So Aaron and Miriam, who are Moses' brother and sister, who've also been raised up by God to have leadership positions... In Egypt, they're starting to get upset with Moses. And Miriam and Aram spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And so really, they weren't, mar- they weren't upset that he married this Cushite woman. They were just sort of grumbling about that because their real problem was that Moses was, you know, he's the only one. He's, is he the only one that the Lord has spoken to? They were upset about his authority, and they were, they were rebelling. They were bucking against it. Now, when, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Imagine this scene, you and your brother and sister in a tent, and God calls for you, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. Now, you talk about having your tail between your legs. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. So he calls, okay, three of them are standing there. You two, come here. And he said, 
Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? In other words, who are you so bold to come and question my man? And then listen to verse 9. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hezroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Okay, that's in the Bible. Now, there, can we all agree that there is a direct link between Miriam's whatever, disobedience, and her leprosy. So, so maybe the disciples had this in mind. And you may be thinking, oh, well, you know, okay, that's the old covenant. The Lord's not like that anymore. Well, well now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I just want you to see that there is this possibility, there's this line of thinking that is legitimate, that there is sometimes a direct link between our suffering and our sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is giving instruction to the Corinthian church. And by the way, Tyler is going through the letter to the Corinthians with the youth on Sunday nights. And this is just a wonderful, a wonderful letter in this culture that we live in uh, that is so confusing for our young people. I'm so thankful that Tyler is taking them through 1 Corinthians. Uh, teenagers get to Sunday nights. They're not meeting tonight, but get, get, get to Sunday nights. Just engulf yourself in the teaching of God's word. And it will help you stand against this culture that we live in and live faithfully for God, for the glory of God. But what's going on in 1 Corinthians is this church is just full of fleshly, selfish people, and yet the Lord still loves them, and he's ministering to them through Paul. And Paul's giving them instructions in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to receive here at the end of this message. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. It's a warning. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So let me pause there. And so what's going on there? I think there's a kind of a double application here. If you are not a believer in Jesus, you should not receive the Lord's Supper when we do it together, usually on the first Sunday of the month, this week, this month on the second Sunday, because we don't want you to be guilty of, of, of doing this, to, to receiving the Lord's meal in an unworthy manner. And what makes you worthy is not your righteousness, but your trust in the righteousness of Christ. 
That's what it means to come to this table. That's what we do when we come to this table. We're, we are confessing that Jesus died for us, that his body was broken for our sins, that his blood was spilled for our sins, and he makes us clean. That's what this meal represents. And Paul here is saying, you shouldn't come unless that's where your trust is. But also there's a kind of internal application, even once we're Christians, because one of the problems in the Corinthian church is that they were just very selfish people. And some of the richer Christians in the Corinth church would sort of have sort of their big feasts, you know, they would cater out and have these big feasts and they wouldn't share and they would cut ahead of people in line. And, you know, so it was just a kind of indulgence in their meal together in the Lord's Supper. And they weren't really caring about those that were less fortunate among them. And Paul was incensed with the selfishness of the Corinthian church as they were celebrating this meal, which is at its very essence celebrating Christ's humility and his sacrifice for us, not our indulgence. And here's Paul's logic here. Here's the verse I want you to see, verse 30. He says, you were being selfish. You weren't really caring. You weren't thinking about what you were doing. It was all about you. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So... So I don't want to get into this too much, but I just want to make the point that evidently Paul, not evidently, clearly Paul is linking the illness and the death of some of the Corinthians with their selfishness and their lack of discernment about the way they were going about taking the Lord's meal together as a church. That's, that's something. So, so let's just, here's the point I'm making, is that on some level, there is at times a link between our suffering and our sin, and that's in God's kindness. It's just a fallen, not only is there a link in Scripture, it's also just the, the, the baseline mindset of, of people. It's a kind of baseline mindset that the world has that, oh, clearly there's some sort of karma that's against you. Think about Job's friends when he's suffering, and they're like, oh, Job, what, what did you do? Or think about at the end of Acts where Paul is shipwrecked on Malta, and he's, they're making a fire there in Malta, and he's moving some wood, and he gets bit by a snake. And all the people, the natives of the island of Malta, back off, and they say, oh, well, he must be a murderer. That was their conclusion when Paul got bit by a snake, and he just sort of shakes it off, and nothing happens to him. The point is, is that it's understandable on some level, both biblically and just knowing this fallen notion of karma that the world operates on, that the disciples would piece this together in this way. But let's go even deeper. What is this view that there is, without a doubt, a direct line between this man's sin and his blindness or his parents' sin? What's going on here? What does this reveal about us, about these disciples? I think it reveals, and Jesus is about to correct it, it reveals a kind of graceless view of the world. It's, it's an assumption that somebody's guilty here and they're getting what they deserve. He had it coming to him is the underlying sentiment of the question. And there can be something in our flesh that is tempted to secretly rejoice in the misfortune of others. Let's not just look at these disciples down the portals of 2,000 years and say, oh, what an insensitive question. We would never be like that. Friends, let's confess that there sometimes is in our flesh the same temptation to secretly rejoice at the misfortune of others. Why is this? 
I think it's because it makes us feel superior to them. It makes us feel, it, it feeds our sort of self-righteousness. Yeah, that guy. I think that's why, that's why clickbait gotcha headline journalism is so attractive. Because we just, we want somebody who we are different from or we may disagree with. We just kind of deep down inside want to see them get what they got coming to them. And if there's any of that in us, we just need to, we need to not stand over here next to Jesus and say, yeah, man, your disciples, man, they messed that up. We, we, need, we, need, we need to be humbled by this. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, that, O oh Lord, if you should mark our iniquities, who could stand? Who could stand? And so the question, who sinned? And what's the answer? Verses 3 and 4, Jesus answered, this is so beautiful. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what does Jesus say? Jesus is saying, look, there's in this case, sometimes there is, we've read about that in Miriam's case in Numbers chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians 11, sometimes there is, and in some sense, all of the suffering, all of the, the, the maladies in this world, every sort of disease, every sort of bad circumstance is in some sense a direct consequence of the fall. But Jesus here is saying that directly, not always, is suffering a direct line. A, personal suffer, a person's personal suffering can be traced directly to their sin and suffering. And so he says, it was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, friends, these are deep theological waters, but I believe they're very clear. It's a deep pool, but it's a clear pool. Jesus is saying two things. First, he is denying, as I've just said, he's denying that there is always a direct connection between sin and suffering. And second, more profoundly, and I think this is the point of this passage, is that there is a God-ordained purpose behind this man's blindness, behind his suffering. Think about that. Now, God has intentionally... Let's say, it, let's say it directly and without shame. God has intentionally made this man blind, born that way, for the greater purpose of revealing his power in this man's life at an appointed time according to his good pleasure, for the display of his good and his glory and the good of this man. Now, the Bible is full of of this type of intention by God. I think of Genesis chapter 50. Joseph, being sold into slavery by his brothers, treated horribly by them, left for dead, lied about by Potiphar's wife, lied, forgotten by his cellmates when they get before the Pharaoh. And all of this happens, and through a course of time, he eventually is exalted by his righteousness to be really the second in charge in Egypt. And he because of the role he's in, is now in a place to be able to rescue his brothers and his family in Israel from their famine. And at the end of Genesis, we see this confession of Joseph where he says, what you intended for evil, meaning his brothers, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. And so we see the same event, all of this sin that's been committed against Joseph 
We see this double intention, the intention of Satan, the intention of evil brothers, and the intention of God that is overriding that and even using, this is profound, even using the intention of the adversary to bring about his greater intention in the life of Joseph and his family and ultimately the rescue of Israel from famine. Think about, let me, let me show you this even just more pointedly in the life of Paul. Go, let, me, let me read you from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a, a familiar passage maybe to many of you. It's a familiar thing in your mind about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And we're not exactly sure what Paul's thorn in the flesh is, whether it was a spiritual problem or whether it was a physical problem. I don't think that's so important, really. It's just it was a problem. It was something that he was struggling with. But I want you to see Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired logic about that thorn, that suffering that he was enduring. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. This is Paul. He says, So, to keep me, to keep me from being conceited. Now, does the devil want to keep you from being conceited? No, he wants you to be conceited. So already we're clued off. Somebody, somebody other than the devil is behind this. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, in other words, God was showing me so much that I might be, I might be vulnerable to spiritual pride, but in order to keep me from all that, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. And I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Go back to verse 10. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. And so Satan has a will to harass Paul. And God is overriding all of this, using Satan to bring about his work of humility in Paul's life. He's doing this. He's bringing about this difficulty for this greater good. I've told you this story before, but I, I love it, and I still am dealing with PTSD from it. But when I was little, I used to, my brother and I used to box, and well, we didn't really box. I, I would put on these boxing gloves, and the game was where I would just hit him, and he couldn't hit me, because I was, I was the little brother, and I was a little bit of a baby. And so I would just hit him. And my brother was never allowed to, to hit me in the face or anything, but what he would do sometimes when he got tired of me just sort of boxing him and he would just take body blow after body blow, he would say, okay, this is enough, and he would jump on me and he would throw me down on the ground and he would take my hands and he would use my hands to just like hit my own face, <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, there you go, take it, little brother, take it. And this is the, the picture of what God is doing. He's using... The fists of Satan, so to speak, that he thinks is in some way like harassing Paul. He's using the wiles of the enemy 
to actually bring about his good in Paul's life. That's what's going on in this man's life. He was born blind. This is happening for some greater purpose. God, this is the doctrine of God's utter good providence. We get it from passages like this. God is behind this man's suffering for his glory and his good. That's beautiful. Let me, let me read to you what Christians years past, some 500 years ago, I've read this before through the years, I think it is the most beautiful and uh, most comforting articulation of the doctrine of God's control, of God's good providence over all things. And it comes from Belgium. We just prayed for the, the Copleys in Amsterdam earlier. This comes from the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. It's called the Belgic Confession of Faith. And this is what these uh, reformers in that part of the world in the Netherlands pieced together as a kind of systemic, systemic, uh, systematic theology of God's providence. And this is the doctrine of God's providence. Listen to what they said. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, that, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. So let me pause there and saying, I think this is true. I think that whatever, God works all things together. He, he, he creates light and darkness. Isaiah, he knows the end from the beginning. There's these unbelievable passages in the Old Testament that even in Amos where it says, is there calamity that comes upon the city that I did not bring? God is sovereign over it all. Now, how do we piece that together? They anticipate our question with the next paragraph. This is what the confession says. Yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. Now, you may be thinking, well, how, how does paragraph one and paragraph two go together? How, does it, how can God, in a sense, order all things and yet not be charged with the sin that occurs? Friends, this is, as this confession says, incomprehensible. We don't know. And now they give a kind of explanation of how we should apply this to our hearts. It continues, we do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. There are just some things, some purposes, the wisdom of God, which we cannot fully know. God has brought this blindness upon this man for his good. But God, how could that be? How could you be up to something good in this man's life when he's endured such suffering? We can't see it, but we can see what Jesus says, and we can believe it even if we don't fully understand it. This doctrine, it continues, gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. 
He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control so that not one of the hairs of our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. Amen. Friends, why is this perspective so hard for us that God would work in this way? I, I think it reveals two false lines of thinking. First, first, let's admit that in all of us, there's often a little bit of a subtle version of the prosperity gospel. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, no, we, we know, we see the abuses of maybe these charlatans that are on TBN and TV preachers that are, you know, preaching some sort of financial fortune, if you will just sow seed into their ministry. And we roll our eyes at and I say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. But, but we similarly are vulnerable to think that if I just believe the right things and I obey the Lord and I live a relatively righteous life and God kind of owes me obedient children, a happy marriage, job satisfaction. And that is a kind of subtler form It's a less indulgent, but still prosperity-driven gospel that God owes me something here in this life. And the second thing that it reveals about us when we struggle with God's providence, and I struggle with this, is that we don't, it shows us that we don't live for heaven like we should. Because we read this man's, we read this and we think, gosh, God, and this guy's got about maybe 70 or 80 years. Maybe in this, you know, first century world, maybe this life expectancy was only 50 years. And so, God, would you really make this man be blind for maybe half his life or maybe over half his life? And just so that you can work this miracle. I mean, gosh, that just, man, come on. That just, and when we think that way, we are thinking of life as if these few decades that we have in this life are all that there is. And that's a lie. And so, when anything comes along that might threaten our optimal or fulfilling life in a worldly sense, it immediately threatens our joy. And let's admit this, friends. Let's admit this. I think the greatest challenge of the Christian life is to continually live for eternity and not just these 80 and 90 years. And strangely, you know how people say, Well, he's so heavenly-minded that he's of no earthly good. You know how people say that? Have you ever heard that? Don't say that. Actually, I think the reverse is true. That if we're really heavenly-minded, if we know that God is sovereign and nothing happens to us apart from his good, fatherly, orderly arrangement, then we can give our lives away and we can actually be more fruitful here because we are living for there. And this, friends, this is... This is really easy to preach and it's much harder to live. It is. I believe this, but I will forget this Wednesday when something gets hard. And, and we, we, we need to see this. There's no other way to conform your heart to this than to see this scripture, confess this, confess our lack of faith, confess our lack of perspective, and link arms with brothers and sisters in a local church and say to one another, help me remember this, that we're not just living for these 80 or 90 years. But friends, we forget this. And Jesus is saying that there's something greater here. I mean, we will live. I just ordered this book on heaven by a pastor in North Carolina named Andy Davis, and I 
read a little bit of it, and it's just glorious. He is, it's a meditation on heaven, and it is glorious. And one of the things that he says that just made my heart sing, and I want to I remember this, is that he said that, that God, that in heaven, our joy, our experience of God will always be increasing. He says that we make the mistake that we think of heaven in a kind of static way. In other words, we go to heaven and then we have these glorified bodies and we're just sort of with God and our experience is sort of flatlined. But he says, no, heaven is not static. It's, it's dynamic. It's always increasing. Because if God's righteousness and his mercy and all of his attributes and all of the glory that is God is, is, has no limit, then part of our heavenly glorified experience is experiencing God with more joy in each successive day, if there is whatever days look like in heaven. And so we will, we will continually be growing in our enjoyment of God. We will, we will have more occasion to worship him one second after we're in heaven, and we'll have much more occasion to worship him the next second because our experience of God will always be ever increasing. Now, friends, I realize that the Bible doesn't say much about this, but I think that's clearly true. God has no limit in the, in the, in the radiance of his glory. And if that's true, then I need to fight. Part of the motivation, part of the way that God has wired us to live in this life is to look forward to that life. And I keep saying this, but I want to hammer this home. Friends, this is not easy. I think this is clear, but this is not easy. Because we have so many siren songs that want to lead us in the other direction. Like, yeah, you only live once. Do it all now. Come on, everything now, everything now. He who wins with the most toys, dies with the most toys, wins. All these messages of our culture that say these 80 years are everything. And the Bible goes the opposite way. And part of the dissonance, part of the struggle that we all feel is we don't really believe that. And the Holy Spirit, every time we open the Word and we read a section like this or a story like this, that pain that we feel, that dissonance that we feel, is the Holy Spirit wrenching our death grip on this world so that he can attach those hands to himself. As G.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, I think he, he detaches our hands from the things of this world to attach those hands to himself. Friends, I, come on, I'm not good at that. And, and neither are you. And so that's why we need each other. Now let's look at the miracle. Now this is, let me, let me speed along here. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. <laughs> that's a lot of spit now. And he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now what's going on there? Now he does something similar twice in Mark. Um, one time he, he spits on a guy's face. One time he spits on his finger and puts it in a guy's ear. <laughs> you know, it's just like, what? But here it's a mud pie. It's a mud pie. He spits on a bunch of, bunch of dirt and put, pats it on the guy's eyes. I love this. There's this, there's this, there's this uh, living theologian. He's, one of the, he's a great modern New Testament theologian. His name is Don Carson. 
Maybe some of you have read some of his books. Just a wonderfully brilliant man. And he's written a commentary on John, which is really respected in our circles. And, and this is what Carson says about what's going on in this verse where Jesus spits on the dirt and makes mud and pats it on the guy's eyes. He says, and I quote, this guy has multiple PhDs. He's one of the most brilliant men that I know biblically. And this is what he says. It is extremely difficult to decide just what this signifies. <laughs> Amen. I think that's right. John Calvin's thought that it meant to, it was Jesus' way of intensifying the man's blindness so as to make the miracle of his sight even more glorious. Kind of like in the Old Testament in 1 Kings where Elijah the prophet is standing before the 450 prophets of Baal, these false prophets, and he's mocking them, and he builds this altar with wood, and he actually douses the wood with water and gets the wood wet and then calls down fire from heaven just to make the miracle even more glorious. And, and, and Calvin is, 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 is just, you know, postulating that Jesus is just making it more difficult by putting mud on his eyes. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe. Some have said that the dirt in the ancient culture, in first century Palestine, dirt and any bodily fluid was considered unclean by Levitical law, and Jesus is kind of representing here that whatever he touches, even the most unclean thing, reverses that, and the unclean becomes clean when Jesus touches it. So the polluted becomes purified when Jesus is involved, and I think there might be something to that. At the least, let's just admit, this is unusual and out of the ordinary, and I think that's meant to be the point. I don't think we need to go too deep into wondering what the mud symbolizes. I think this it just shows us that Jesus works in both ordinary and extraordinary, in usual and unusual ways. Jesus can do and does do whatever he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants. And we cannot. We cannot systematize our experience with the Lord and impose it as a template on others. Do you know uh, that as many of you, as, and think about all the people that have come to, I, I love to think about this. I have been in the room four times. I've been in the room four times when people were born, my four children. I was a nervous, we were just laughing about this the other day because we have a grandchild coming and um, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a, can you pray for me, church? I'm in a little bit of hot water because I'm, I'm in two weeks, I'm, I'm going to South Africa and I schedule this trip the day of the due date of my grandchild. So, um, my name is mud basically in my family, but anyway, I've been in the room when four people have been born and I'm certainly not going to be in the room when my grandchild's born, even if I was here, I don't, I don't know. But think about this. How many billions and billions and billions of people over the centuries have come to faith in Jesus? That's how many different ways that a soul has passed through the birth canal of the Holy Spirit. All of the four physical births that I saw were different. The labor pains were different. The timing was different. God, God works in miraculous ways. 
He does. He just, he's think about this, how specific and how personal is the loving father. He wooed me through my older brother over the course of four or five years hearing the gospel. And he wooed me. Then he brought this heavyweight champion boxer who could barely enunciate a sentence and it opened my eyes to the gospel. And right now, maybe God is wooing your heart. He, he, he does whatever he wants in mysterious, glorious, strange ways. Strange ways. Seemingly foolish ways to bring about his work in our lives. And this miracle, I think, is a picture of not just how Jesus can heal physical blindness, it's, it's the healing of spiritual blindness. It's, it's In fact, all of the healings of Jesus are not ultimately meant to dead end on the fact that Jesus can heal us physically. Of course he can. But everybody that Jesus healed physically in the Gospels eventually died physically. They are all pictures of a spiritual reality. We are all like this man. We were born blind, spiritually blind. And Jesus comes to us and he gives us sight in strange and unusual and imperceptible and by the eyes of the world, foolish ways. And he opens up our eyes. In fact, that's the whole message of the cross. Listen to this as we end 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I, I personally, I don't know if this is exegetically or theologically correct, but it's devotionally encouraging to me. I see a connection between the foolishness and the unusualness of mud. What? And the foolishness and the unusualness of the cross is the means to bringing sight. You, you mean to tell me that the creator of the universe would allow his creation to crucify him so that he would die on the cross for their sins, that he would take their punishment, and that he would open up their eyes so that they can trust in him, the one who created them, who also died for them, who rose again from them? You mean that that is the message of Christianity? Yes, that seems crazy that this omnipotent being would do that. To the eyes of the world, Paul is admitting that that is foolishness. But to those who have eyes to see, it is the power of God. And friends, he does that for you if you're a Christian. He has done that, and he can do that for you if you are blind. My prayer is that we all would see and trust in Jesus. Now let's pray before we receive communion. As the band comes and leads us, and then Tyler will come lead us to receive communion together. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And then as the song is being played, you, if you are a believer, you're welcome to come to the table and find the usher that's closest to you and take the elements, the bread and the cup, and then hold on to them, and Tyler will lead us to receive them together. Lord, the message of the cross is foolish to blind people, but it's the power of God to those of us that are being saved. 
And we know that we are being saved by your power, not by our own. We don't make ourselves see. We know that you must give us eyes to see. So, Lord, for any friends in this room who, by your Holy Spirit, have been made aware that they have not previously seen, but they now see, Lord, would you awaken them? Would you give them a heart so that they can trust in Jesus? And for those of us that do see, Lord, we, we know we see, but Lord, the, the, the windshield of our eyes of faith can get muddy at times. It can get, it can get, it can get polluted, Lord. Refresh us, clean us, wipe, wipe our eyes afresh so that we can see Jesus clearly again. And like this man did, obey him. Obey him. Lord, as we come to this table, nourish us with your body and blood that this bread and juice symbolizes. Nourish us with the gospel, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.